0: Good morning church. How are you today? I want to wish a happy Father's Day to all of the fathers that are here with us. If you're a dad, would you please stand for just a moment? If you're a dad, be on your feet. Don't Don't be bashful. Come on dads, all right. We know you don't want the attention, but we want to give it. So thank you. Thank you. The things that you do as fathers uh, in the home, in the workplace, may impact the, the spiritual health of the next generation, both in your family and in the church and in the community uh, as much or more as any other contribution that we could make. Dads, uh, I just saw this week in the USA Today, a study about dads and about fatherhood, uh, and you could go read it for yourself. I'm sure there's a lot of articles like that out this morning. Uh, that talked about all of the benefits uh, of of someone who has been able to live in a home with a, a caring and attentive father and we know that not everyone here has experienced that uh, and that for some fatherhood is a broken and difficult thing and yet God has hope even in our brokenness he always fills in the cracks of the things that have been shattered in our lives. In our lives, he makes them whole again. And he is able to turn them into a beautiful mosaic, a piece of art that we could have never imagined. And so whether you came from a home with a good father or one where it was broken, uh, we thank God for the gift of fatherhood in our world. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. And so uh, today I want to share, uh, as we begin, uh, a brief story uh, in the Paul Harvey-esque style with you and so this is the third part of our series the rest of the story and we'll begin with this um, this three-and-a-half-minute story that maybe Paul Harvey would have put on his radio show back in the day Uh, and now the rest of our story near the end of the decade a hard-working 23-year-old entrepreneur opened his first business a clothing shop that specialized in an American staple the denim blue jean, as well as a few specialty items that catered to current fashion trends. The young man was from a small town in rural America. He only had a high school education, but he had made the most of it. He served as senior class president for his high school, worked several jobs to put away some savings, and was known to all as an outgoing and conscientious fellow who always did a job the right way. Now, the small shop clothing industry has always been a hard win, but the young man worked tirelessly, days, nights, and weekends. Enjoying the support of his friends and family, the shop owner managed to develop a stable clientele and a reputation for treating the customer right. He hired his girlfriend, who would later become his wife and the love of his life, to do small alterations and help run the shop. And in time, they hired a second employee and turned the business into quite the small-town success. Life continued on an upward path, and four years into the business, the young couple welcomed their first child, a boy. He grew up going to the jeans store, eating lunches behind the counter, and watching the occasional cartoon in the small back room. During the boy's early years, the young father managed his business well, and balanced home and work admirably, at least for the most part. But by the time the second child arrived, also a son, seven years into the life of the now profitable business, the 30-year-old husband and father of two was facing regular work weeks of 70-plus hours. With an infinite home and a toddler besides, his wife could not spend as much time at the shop. Family life was becoming more difficult to balance and the shop owner was playing a delicate balancing act between earning for his beloved family and finding time to spend enjoying them. On the radio one day, the young father overheard a song by Harry Chapin that had been a number one hit the previous decade during his high school years. The lyrics hauntingly told the story of the relationship between a father and son. The first verse went like this, My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. But there were planes to catch and bills to pay. And he learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he said, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And the second, actually the third verse near the end of the song continues with the young man's story. The father recites, I've long since retired and my son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. And he said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle, and the kids got the flu. But it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. As I hung up the phone, it occurred to me he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. And as the chorus played for the final time with these words, when are you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then." In the song, and the other good and wise counsels influenced the young father to make a life-altering decision. He and his wife put the shop up for sale and decided to regain control over their time for the benefit of their two young boys. Over the next 10 years, the father worked a variety of jobs, selling real estate, selling cars, managing a pizza shop, and even delivering pizza while he worked his way through a college degree, one of the first in his family ever to do so. But through all of this, the family blossomed. They welcomed their third son four years later, and over the years the boys grew, the dad found time to camp with them, coach their ball teams, encourage them in their widely varied hobbies, and make even the small things in life fun. Who is the man in the story? You may have never heard of him, but you have seen his handiwork. His name is Harold Leroy, Roy to family and friends, Bundy, and he is my father. And now you know the rest of our story. You see, my dad made an important decision as a young father. He knew this principle that we talked about two weeks ago, and I pray you'll forgive my emotion as I Retell the story about the man that I'm so grateful for. And two weeks ago, we talked about this principle that's on the screen behind me that that rest in life, having a balance in life between work and rest is an individual biological mandate. You can't get away from it. Everybody has to have balance in life. And this principle, that says what we do about work and rest as individuals, what I choose to do as a person, as a man or as a woman, impacts the social and spiritual dimensions of rest. Last week, we talked about some of the individual choices every person has to make, some of the questions that we have to answer in life. And today, we want to talk about how the decisions we make impact our communities. How do they impact family? How do they impact the office where you have some leverage as a boss or where someone is your boss, someone who you answer to? How do these choices that we make as individuals influence the social community of the church, And so to get into the topic this morning, we're going to look briefly at three passages of Scripture. These all come from the Old Testament, but they're extremely important. And so I'd invite you to open up to Psalm chapter 92 with me this morning. Psalm chapter 92. These are the words that Jim read to us at the beginning of this morning's service. He read the first two verses of this psalm. And what I want you to witness as we look at Psalm 92 and then at Deuteronomy chapter 5 and then at 2 Chronicles chapter 36 is that the teachings about rest and Sabbath in the Old Testament, the same Bible that the early Christians, the New Testament Christians used, that these teachings about rest and Sabbath were deeply communal. They were not only individual decisions. They were for the society And this psalm is the only one that we have in the scriptures that is tagged at the beginning of the song in quite this way. If you're following along in the notes in your bulletin, uh, you can start filling in right there at this point. This is an important thing to note. This psalm says as its inscription that it is a song to be sung on the Sabbath day. It gives just a little bit of insight into the community of ancient Israel that they did not view Sabbath only as something that you did in isolation. Although surely some times of private rest would be part of the Sabbath day. But worship and community and family were deeply embedded in what they thought of as soul restoring rest. Being in the modern age with the church and the family is an important and integral part of resting well in the Lord. These first two verses that Jim read point us towards worship, and maybe you can imagine reading them or singing them in preparation for a worship on Sunday morning, like what we're gathered here today to do. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. It's good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning and your faithfulness in the evening. What you would notice if you read through the psalm all the way to the end And I've only got time to point out two things about it this morning. Is that verses 1 through 11 are individual. They sound as if they're being spoken or sung by one person. Let me show you one example. Verse 4 reads this way. You thrill me, Lord. You thrill me, Lord. With all you have done for me. I sing for joy because what you have done. In other words... The song singer is thinking about his individual experience, worshiping and resting in the Lord. But verses 12 through 15 change the tone. They become communal. They become corporate. Look at these verses with me. Verse 12 reads, But the godly, a group of people, a plurality of people, will flourish like palm trees and grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon. So this group of godly people will experience refreshing, restorative, deep-rooted, nourishing, God-centered, spirit-fueled life on a day of Sabbath. Amen, church? Amen. For they, the group, are transplanted to the Lord's own house. Think of the imagery of worship in that passage, being transplanted in the house of the Lord together. They flourish in the courts of our God. This is our story of worship. And even in old age, they will still produce fruit. They will remain vital and green. They will declare, the Lord is just And then we see this individual side again. For he is my rock. There is no evil in him. And so deeply embedded in the only psalm that declares itself to be for the Sabbath day, you see both individual choice to worship God and a family setting, a corporate setting, a communal setting. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. In this passage, we find the second account of the Sabbath command as it was given to Israel inside of the Mosaic law. And next week we're gonna come back to this passage before we end our series in the New Testament because Jesus will draw deeply on the teachings of Deuteronomy five to teach us the good news and the gospel rest that he offers. But in Deuteronomy five, 12 through 15, we find this teaching, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. It sounds a lot like Exodus chapter 20, but now there's this addition. You have six days each work for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. Can you see the communal impact the familial impact, the way that this teaching now in Israel is meant to change the home. No one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons, and your daughters. But God doesn't stop there. Your male and female servants. Something many of you don't have today, but many of you have employees. The rest of you are employees. And in the biblical era when families were the center of both business and economy as well as home, this would be like saying, make sure that the people who work for you are allowed to rest well. Your oxen and your donkeys, so even the pets and the livestock are supposed to take a day off, and other livestock and any foreigners living among you, even people that aren't part of the covenant, if they're in your home, are supposed to take part in the communal rest. All your male and female servants must rest as you do. And this is the teaching that we understand that comes out of passages like this one. Rest, you must rest, so that those under you can also rest. If you're the father of a home and you refuse to take some downtime and have rhythm in life, your family will emulate you. If you're the leader in the workplace and you refuse to give anyone some downtime, we all understand that there are seasons of busyness, that there are seasons that must be defined where extra effort is given. But if you never give your team the freedom To know that they can take some downtime and they're still okay with you, you're not fulfilling. The way Sabbath was intended in its communal setting and its communal impact. You must rest so that those under you can also rest. You see, as leaders, whether it's in the home or the office or the church, as leaders, our habits dictate opportunities. They give or they take away these opportunities to those for whom we are responsible. And especially when it comes to godly rest, to worship, to things that happen at home with the family, the things that you can never get again if you miss that season of life. It is so important that whatever influence you have as a father, as a mother, as a business person, as an elder, minister, deacon, or whatever role you play in church, family, and office, that you make sure that those whom you are leading have the opportunity to rest in the Lord. Can I get an amen, church? Amen. Finally, Second Chronicles chapter 36. In these verses, we read a terrifying story. It's not really a happy thing, but it seems like this would be a good time to share it. It at least brings the impact home for us. This passage tells the story of the Babylonian conquest and the captivity of Judah. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women, the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the whole nation, taken into captivity. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God, and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his officials. You should be hearing this church. Everything they had worked so hard to obtain. Everything that they took greater pride in than they did the Lord. Everything that they had ignored the Sabbath teaching so that they could get an extra time and get ahead of the nations around them. Because God had warned them in the book of Leviticus. He said, if you do what I know you'll do, and you ignore the seventh day off, and you ignore the seventh year off, and you ignore the year of Jubilee, I will send you into exile. If you ignore those commands, and he knew that they would do it. But while they are working those extra hours, getting ahead of the nations around, God's been preparing Babylon to come in and to sweep it all away. And then Nebuchadnezzar's army burned the temple of God. What a terrible reading for the people of Israel for anyone who loves the Lord. He tore down the walls of Jerusalem. He burned all the palaces and completely destroyed everything of value. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon and they became servants to the king and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. And then there is this haunting and unexpected passage. The message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled and what Was it that God had said that came true at the exile? The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest. If it doesn't give you chills that the people of God lost everything and that it had started when they forgot to set time aside for worship and rest, then you're missing the story of the people of Israel. And you fail failed to understand what the gospel of Jesus means for you now as well. All of these things that they lost were rooted in the promises and the trust that they were supposed to have in the Lord as a community about Sabbath. And so God says, Now, even with you gone, the land will finally enjoy its rest, lying desolate until the 70 years are fulfilled, just as the prophet had said, And this is the message that Israel might have heard on that day. The message they might have finally understood. That for those people under the covenant of God, under the Mosaic covenant, if you don't take the Sabbath, the Sabbath will take you. And those of us who live today maybe wouldn't put it in quite those words because we're not under that same covenant. But we know this is true. If we don't take the rest that the community of God needs, the rest will take us. It will break us down. It will break our families apart. If you want to pin all of the brokenness in our society, all the things that trouble you, all the illicit relationships, all the things in the media, the things that that you bemoan and you say, I can't believe our country has gotten to this point, Maybe the one thing that we lost was protecting sacred time. Maybe like the people of Israel, we forgot the blessing of working hard and diligently for six days and then having some serious time off and giving that freedom to each other. Again, this was communal for them This is what happened in society when a person's choice turned into people's choices and it turned into the choices of all the people. We're going to take a a few moments now and do something a little different. And I want to welcome Scene and Rachel uh, Evans to come up and sit here with me. We're going to take a few moments and hear a testimony about a a time in Scene and Rachel's life when they were faced with some family decisions just like this. I'm going to give this to you guys. Come up and find a seat. All right. I'm so thankful to have you here today. Welcome to the moon.
1: Yes. I don't like to fly, so this is stressing me out a this little bit. This is stressful,
0: a little stressful for all of us. By the way, we do have three baptisms at the end of service inside of that rocket ship. And so our AV team has worked diligently all week provide a way that we can watch them on the screen. So this is the beginning of VBS right in front of you. So, okay, Scene and Rachel, welcome. We're so glad you're here. I just want to ask a couple questions and have you guys fill in a little story. Uh, There was a time in your life uh, working in a legal position in Dallas where things just got crazy. And when you told me this story, uh, some of the pinnacle of it was during the auto industry collapse. You guys were doing work for the government, helping uh, with all of that regulation. So would you just describe a little bit for us? What was work like at the pinnacle of this crazy time in your career?
1: Sure, so in short, it was all-consuming. Um, my firm at the time, I, I lived and worked in Dallas, and my firm was selected to represent Chrysler when it decided that it was going to file for bankruptcy. And we got the news in October of uh, you know, some year, I think 20, 2009, and we instantly went into kind of a traditional work pattern for us which was 20 hour days seven days a week Um, that part really wasn't unusual when we had something large like that going on but some things started to happen that were a little unusual that started to kind of grab my attention the first was i was asked to miss holidays for the first time yeah i was asked to work over thanksgiving and christmas and I had to kind of finagle it so that I could get some time off during those those holidays. And I remember I couldn't tell my family because it wasn't public knowledge at the time that they were gonna file bankruptcy. And I couldn't explain to them, hey, we're not coming home for Thanksgiving this year. If you wanna see us, you'll have to come down and I'll probably only be available for a limited period of time during the, the actual holiday. Um, so that was unusual. And then sometime during that time, I started, this is, you should not do this. This is a really bad habit. I started sleeping with my BlackBerry kind of on my chest. And I was doing that so that I wouldn't miss an email or a phone call, Yeah. which okay. should tell you a little bit about when the emails and the phone calls were coming in, uh-huh. right? They were incessant.
0: And so you'd, you'd actually wake up, you would answer the thing, you'd put it back on your chest and go back to sleep. Oh,
1: absolutely. Oh, well. okay. And that was an expectation. Okay. I mean, it was not, yeah. it was not my choice. Yeah. It was an expectation. And I remember vividly the kind of you asked what was the pinnacle yeah. of the work situation and I can remember it vividly because it was the week that Chrysler filed bankruptcy and we knew Friday was the filing deadline. And so we had worked up until, you know, Friday morning at five AM to get ready for it. And we were kind of sitting around the table counting how many hours we had slept that week. Yeah. And there was five of us and we'd slept a combined thirty five hours in five days. Wow. And we were joking at the time that we didn't feel safe to drive home. Yeah. And then I got in the car and it wasn't safe for me to drive home. And I had to pull over and I had to call a cab and I had to have someone take me home. And I remember thinking at that moment that we'd done all this really cool work, but it had come at a cost. I had jeopardized my safety by driving home. And it made me wonder what else I was jeopardizing. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of began a a self-exploration of what Are we doing? What could we do differently? And to put that
0: in perspective, you know, five people a healthy amount of sleep should be about two hundred hours of sleep between the five people, right? And so you're talking fifteen percent, eighteen percent, or so of the sleep the team needed is what you guys are actually right getting. Right.
1: Wow. And that's not smart, by the way. You don't produce good work product when you're doing that. But that was what you did. Okay.
0: But you were making killer money. Uh, I, we were,
1: Yes, the yeah. firm had a very good way of paying you just enough money to stay. Right. And you traded a lot of your freedom for money, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, you call that, when we talked before, you called that the trap. You said that there was this trap of where the lifestyle gets to a point, you have to kind of keep up with it.
1: Yeah, the, the, my colleagues refer to it as the golden handcuffs. Golden handcuffs, They're Right? Gonna, yeah. They thought they'd made so much money that they could never give up the money. Which also, we know, not true, but that was the thinking, right? I Because whatever they paid you, whatever else you did was going to be a substantial pay cut. Yeah. That's just the way it was. Okay. And so they felt trapped.
0: Okay, so let's talk a little bit too, and, and Rachel, you're going to jump in here, I think. with That's what was going on at work. Uh, what was going on at home? At the pinnacle of this, what was family starting to feel like?
2: So we had just gotten used to Scene working all the time. At this time, we had Ava. She was our only child, thankfully, or could have been even crazier. But he would, and seeing is a very good dad and a very good husband, and he would come home. You know, we had put her on a late schedule where she went to bed late at night, so she would get to see Scene a little bit. He would come home to help me bathe her, and get her ready for bed, and so he could just see her for a few minutes. And then he would go back to work till midnight or one in the morning. And I did not like being home alone, so I would stay up until he could get home, and so we both were tired. Thankfully, Ava slept in late because we put her on that late schedule, so that worked, but I mean, I can remember one night, um, I heard a helicopter hovering over our house. And we lived in Dallas, and it our neighborhood was a very good neighborhood. But in Dallas, there's spots all around you, you know, that aren't safe. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I thought this helicopter is about to land on our house. And I remember looking out, and I could see their lights sweeping our street uh-huh. from the helicopter. And it's midnight, and Sean's not home. He's at work, right. and I called him, and I said, "Something is happening here. You have got to get home." He said, I can't Rachel, I've got this deal, we've got to get it done. He said, I'll call the police and see what the deal is. Yeah. So he calls me back, he said, they said, it's gonna be fine, somebody's house got broken. into. Uh, <laughs> <on>
0: the loose. <laughs> said, they're looking
2: yeah. for a house to escape to and it's gonna be ours right. and he said, it'll be fine. So, you know, it was just one of those times that I needed him, yeah. I needed him to come home and he felt torn between me and then his boss and those he was working with he had to stay and it was fine. nobody came and got into our house so I was fine but you see an armadillo. yeah I did see an armadillo as I was looking out there's an armadillo on our porch of course that freaked me out too always scared there's an the armadillo, armadillo. <laughs> so and it'd become on the weekends we couldn't count on we couldn't make plans and I couldn't count on him to be there on the weekends and it was we talk about the Chrysler when he was doing that deal, but it was always, you know, you think, well, if we just hung in there till you got done with that deal, which we did, but there was always another deal. Yeah. And there was always something else that came that took time away. Um, on Sundays, he got to the he tried to never work on Sundays, but it got to the point where he had to. And he would go into work before church, like at five in the morning, and then he would meet me and Ava at church on Sunday morning and then we would say bye in the parking lot he would go back to work she and i would go i mean there was no sabbath there was no rest even when he was home he wasn't present he had his blackberry he was constantly emailing and engaged in what he was doing there he was constantly stressed because he couldn't disconnect he never was able to disconnect from work and it was a 24 7 thing for him and so we never fully had him to ourselves yeah. we could never take vacations um, and I'm not talking fancy I'm just talking he couldn't take a week off to just be with us yeah. ever yeah. Um, the one time he took a week off for us to go away was he switched jobs while we were in Dallas and so <laughs> he planned it so that he wouldn't start the next job until after we'd had a vacation yeah. So. We just never had that family time to just be us and him to be able to be disengaged from that
0: sure so it got really crazy um so we've got a couple of minutes let me ask you two more questions and the one is what did you guys do about it because you guys aren't villains like you've done this really well like this isn't where you wanted it to stay right and so you made a tough choice and then what have you learned from it so we'll kind of finish up with those
1: so yeah we made a tough choice um We knew it needed to change, so we started kind of praying and preparing because we didn't know what the change was going to be. Keep in mind, I'm a banking and finance lawyer in 2009, which is in the midst of the credit crisis. So my colleagues are are getting laid off. They're happy to have a job, and here I am, you know, wanting to get rid of a job. And so we we searched, kind of looking for open doors that God would provide, and, and we weren't finding a whole lot initially. And so I decided that I, I'd always wanted to either go back and get an MBA or get an advanced degree in tax law. Yeah. And so Rachel and I decided that maybe now was the time to do that. Yeah. And we ended up quitting a job without any prospect of another job and taking a year off, where I went back to school to get this. Uh
0: and where? And where did you go?
1: So I was in school in New York. Yeah. My family. Rachel and Ava and then Eli decided not decided we all decided to stay in Dallas yeah. So I would commute back and forth and that was in part because after we had made the decision to do this We found out that Rachel was pregnant with Eli yeah. which was not great timing when you're making these lifestyle changes but um, And we'll talk about this when you know God saw us through it all of it, yeah. right? But part of it was kind of reorienting what I was going to do, but part of it was we decided that to leave Dallas. Mm-hmm. We kind of did an assessment of what the legal landscape looked like there, and we couldn't see it getting better. And so we decided that we would focus our job search in places that were not um, Dallas.
0: Yeah.
1: And that was a big change for us, too, because we'd lived there for 10 years. But all of those things worked out.
0: Yeah. So uh, talk about now. What have you guys learned? I mean, you ended up making the the big switch and you moved here so what is life like now what are the takeaways
2: it's much better now <laughs> we moved northwest Arkansas and I will say scene has always he was the one who decided we need to move here right. and while I did not like the situation we were in I'm also not a big fan of change yeah. and we already had friends there and had yeah. a community there and they had all helped me through that when scene was gone commuting back and forth to new york i had friends who chipped in you know jumped in so i was a little nervous about moving just because we were leaving those connections but i knew god was going to take care of us and that it was going to be better and we had said you know what the money doesn't matter it we don't we can't spend time together as a family we would rather go somewhere where we you know we make less we have a family yeah and now if the kids don't remember ava doesn't remember she was young so she doesn't remember what it was like then and if dad misses a meal with us now for which happens very rarely usually for a bca board meeting (laughs) not even for work but um if he misses a meal they're like where's you know where's dad it's odd to them it's not the norm it was the norm back then and on the weekends he's home we kind of are homebodies because we've kind of gotten aware we just want to be together and we just use our time together so on the weekends we're home we're together as a family he's fully present he's able to be involved in their activities come to their programs at school all these things that we started realizing were not going to be a possibility had we stayed
0: beautiful
2: so I wrote
1: down just three or four things that I I learned from this Um, I believe in hard work Mm -hmm. I believe it's. God-honoring to do a good job for mm-hmm. your employer. Yes. Uh, there is a difference between hard work and overwork. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough line to draw, but it is an important one to draw. I cringe a little bit when yes. someone, you know, we engage in these, how are you doing, and I'm good, and mm-hmm. sometimes someone will say, I'm busy.
0: Yeah,
1: I really wish we'd get away from that, Yeah, right? That's not something that we should wear as a badge of honor. Um, I, I learned that God, are reaffirmed that God blesses good decisions, right? Mm -hmm. We made this crazy decision to quit a job without any prospect of another job. In fact, the law school called me and said, why are you coming here? Mm -hmm. We can't guarantee you a job, and most people want the job that you have. And I said, well, they can have it. I'm done with it. I'm coming. And, you know, God saw us through that. Our son was born during my spring break, or Christmas break, right? Which is weird for a thirty-year-old to have a Christmas break. Awesome, I, ha- I had totally up. awesome man. Christmas break. <laughs> yeah, so it was perfect timing. We got to get acclimated and get our feet underneath us. You know, I probably took forty round-trip flights yeah. during that period of time. I missed one, right? Yeah. I was always home yeah. when I was supposed to be home.
0: God was blessing all those flights.
1: God yeah. was blessing all of those flights. He was, you know, Rachel always had people around her to help, um, and then at the end, I had a job, yeah. right? And which was unusual at that time. And now looking back six years, I have a job that I could probably never have had in Dallas. Mm -hmm. I enjoy it immensely. And it allows us to spend time together and have some balance.
0: Beautiful. Um, we're out of time and I just want to say thank you to you guys for sharing and being vulnerable um, with the church to share some of your story you've got beautiful kids they're smart they're fun to be around I can see from the way they interact with you how much they love you guys and, and they have the family experience you've been wanting for them to have plus you volunteer on the BCA board I mean the things you guys get to be involved in that you couldn't have are beautiful and so I want to say thanks from the bottom of my heart And uh, uh, we'll let you guys return to your seats, and I'll wrap up the message. But can we all thank them for sharing with us this morning? Thanks, you guys. As we wrap up this morning, I want to say just one or two things uh, about the communal rhythm, and then we're going to enjoy these baptisms. uh, And anyone else who wants to respond today to the invitation will be welcome to do so. We'll have shepherds down here to receive you and shepherds in the back to receive you. And we want to help you, whether it's praying through some of these difficult decisions of discernment, or whether you're ready to put Christ on in baptism today, or whatever it may be. But as we think about these communal rhythms, we realize that these have to be carefully discerned. This is not something that you just know the right answer to every time. The, the best answer does not always present itself clearly. It takes careful discernment. I was thinking this morning of a scripture from Ephesians 5 where Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, says to them, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And he says the days are evil. By that he means there's there's really not a lot of time. And he's talking to a church, he's urging them to do evangelism, to do discipleship, to be engaged in worship. And he says discern carefully what the Lord's will is because the communal rhythm must be carefully discerned. And for some of us, we've seen this happen in home and in office and in church. And you may even remember some of the same things I do. Difficult times in life where elders in the church, where ministers uh, in the church had to discern some of these difficult decisions and share them with the congregation when the congregation went through periods of discernment. It was only about two decades ago, 20 or so years, when this congregation began to do small groups on Sunday night. What a change. I wasn't here at the time, but I've heard the stories and how difficult it was to begin. But what a blessing is that over time, our small groups grew and grew in their popularity to where they were three to four times as many participating in worship and rest in that setting as would come to Sunday nights. And what a difficult dilemma. And then maybe about a decade ago or so, when Tim and Judy Spencer added a new program in our congregation called Leadership Training for Christ. And it has blessed our children immensely. Can I get an amen from anybody who's been blessed by LTC? Amen. It is. If you don't believe it has... You know, we've had about 15 youth baptized in the last week and three more about to do it this morning. They're being transformed by LTC and by Bible camps and by the youth ministries that we have here. And yet, you add all those hours on a Sunday afternoon and it makes things a little difficult for families to balance all of the opportunities and discern how do we use our time best. And I think about the agony that I saw the shepherds go through as they were deciding what to do with Sunday night preaching just this year and changing the way we do that just, you know, a little bit, but it seems so significant for people like me who grew up going to church, you know, three times a week Christian, right? How many of you have referred to yourself over the years, I'm a a three-time-a-week Christian, hands up high and proud. Put them up if you've said that. That's great. And yet to watch them lead through discerning what is best for our church. Do Do we keep preaching every Sunday night? Do we encourage small groups to meet more? Do we encourage discipleship? Do we encourage rest? And And the answer to that for them was yes, yes, yes. We encourage all of those, but we can't arbitrate them all. We can't legislate them all. We can't decide for every family. We've got to create some freedom. And you should be honored to have shepherds who wrestle and cry and spend time in agony over those kind of decisions because they love the church so much. If you love our shepherds, would you say a loud verbal amen? Amen. Amen. Because they wrestle in these things. you, and they will in the next generation, because the communal rhythm must be carefully discerned in every family and every office and every church, every generation. There is never only one way to achieve this balance, and we pray God's wisdom over this church as we continue to do things like VBS tonight, and we celebrate a little extra effort for Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at VBS, and then we'll go back to a more normal rhythm in the next week as God leads us in and out of these seasons. May he bless you and your families. May he bless you fathers as you make these important decisions. If we can help you in any way, will you share with us as we stand and sing this song of invitation?